Chapter 7 of St. George and St. Michael, Volume 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jordan. St. George and St. Michael, Volume 1, by George MacDonald. Chapter 7 Reflections. Left alone with Lady, his mare, Richard could not help brooding, rather than pondering, over what the old woman had said. Not that for a moment he contemplated as a possibility the acceptance of the witch's offer. To come himself into any such close relations with her as that would imply, was, in repulsiveness, second only to the idea of subjecting Dorothy to her influences. For something to occupy his hands, that his mind might be restless at will, he gave his mare a careful currying, then an extra feed of oats, and then a gallop, after which it was time to go to bed. I doubt if anything but the consciousness of crime will keep a healthy youth awake, and as such consciousness is generally far from it, youth seldom counts the watches of the night. Richard soon fell fast asleep, and dreamed that his patron saint, alas for his Protestantism, appeared to him, handed him a lance, headed with a single flashing diamond, and told him to go, and therewith kill the dragon. But just as he was asking the way to the dragon's den, that he might perform his behest, the saint vanished, and, feeling the lance melting away in his grasp, he gradually woke to find it gone. After a long talk with his father in the study, he was left to his own resources for the remainder of the day, and as it passed and the night drew on, the offer of the witch kept growing upon his imagination, and his longing to see Dorothy became stronger and stronger, until, at last, it was almost too intense to be borne. He had never before known such a possession, and was more than half inclined to attribute it to the arts of Mother Rees. His father was busy in his study below, writing letters, an employment which now occupied much of his time and Richard sat alone in a chamber in the upper part of one of the many gables of the house, which he had occupied longer than he could remember. Its one small projecting lozenge-paned window looked towards Dorothy's home. Some years ago he had been able to see her window from it through a gap in the trees, by favour of which, indeed, they had indulged in a system of communication by means of coloured flags, so satisfactory that, Dorothy not only pressed into the service all the old frocks she could find, but got into trouble for cutting up one almost new for the enlargement of the somewhat limited scope of their telegraphy. In this window he now sat, sending his soul through the darkness, milky with the clouded light of half an old moon, towards the ancient sundial, where time stood, so still that sometimes Richard had known an hour there to pass in a moment. Never until now had he felt enmity in space. It had been hitherto rather as a bridge to bear him to Dorothy, than a gulf to divide him from her presence. But now, through the interpenetrative power of feeling, their alienation had affected all around, as well as within him, and space appeared as a solid enemy, and darkness as an unfriendly enchantress, each doing what it could to separate betwixt him and the being to whom his soul was drawn as no there was no as for such drawing 
No opposition of mere circumstances could have created the feeling. It was the sense of an inward separation taking form outwardly, for Richard was now but too well convinced that he had no power of persuasion equal to the task of making Dorothy see things as he saw them. The dividing influence of imperfect opposing goods is potent as that of warring good and evil, with this important difference, that the former is but for a season, and will one day bind as strongly as it parted, while the latter is essential, absolute, impassable, eternal. To Dorothy, Richard seemed guilty of overweening arrogance, and its attendant presumption. She could not see the form ethereal, to which he bowed. To Richard, Dorothy appeared the dupe of superstition. He could not see the god that dwelt within the idol. To Dorothy, Richard seemed to be one who gave the holy name of truth to nothing but the offspring of his own vain fancy. To Richard, Dorothy appeared one who so little loved the truth that she was ready to accept anything presented to her as such by those who themselves loved the word more than the spirit, and the chrysalis of safety better than the wings of power. But it is only for a time that any good can to the good appear evil, and at this very moment nature, who in her blindness is stronger to bind than the farthest seeing intellect to loose, was urging him into her presence, and the heart of Dorothy, notwithstanding her initiative in the separation, was leaning as lovingly as sadly after the youth she had left alone with the defaced sundial, the symbol of time's weariness. Had they, however, been permitted to meet as they would, the natural result of ever-renewed dissension would have been a thorough separation in heart. No heavenly twilights of loneliness, giving time for the love, which grows like the grass, to recover from the scorching heat of intellectual jar and friction. The waning moon at length peered warily from behind a bank of cloud, and her dim light melting through the darkness, filled the night with a dream of the day. Richard was no more of a poet or dreamer of dreams than is any honest youth, so long as love holds the bandage of custom away from his eyes. The poets are they who, all their life long, contrive to see over or through the bandage, but they would, I doubt, have but few readers, had not nature decreed that all youths and maidens shall, for a period, be it long or short, become aware that they too are of the race of the singers, shall, in the journey of their life, at least pass through the zone of song. Some of them recognize it as the region of truth, and continue to believe in it still, when it seems to have vanished from around them. Others scoff as it disappears, and curse themselves for dupes. Through this zone Richard was now passing. Hence the moon wore to him a sorrowful face, and he felt a vague sympathy in her regard, that of one who was herself in trouble, half the light of her lord's countenance withdrawn. For science had not for him interfered with the shows of things by a partial revelation of their realities. He had not learned that the face of the moon is the face of a corpse world, that the sadness upon it is the sadness of utter loss, that her light has in it no dissolved smile, is but the reflex from a lifeless mirror, that of all the orbs we know best she can have least to do with lovers' longings and losses, 
she alone having no love left in her, the cold cinder of a quenched world. Not an outburnt cinder, though. She needs but to be cast again into the furnace of the sun. As it was, Richard had gazed at her hardly for a minute, when he found the tears running down his face, and, starting up, ashamed of the unmanly weakness, hardly knew what he was doing before he found himself in the open air. From the hall clock came the first stroke of twelve. As he closed the door behind him, it was the hour at which Mother Rees had offered him a meeting with Dorothy, but it was assuredly with no expectation of seeing her that he turned his steps towards her dwelling. End of chapter 7